Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by SIRDAN, improving well-being through innovation. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. I'm delighted to welcome back this month's podcast guest, paediatric pathology consultant, Professor Marta Cohen. In part one, we found out about Marta's life and career. And in this episode, we will be exploring a case study that Marta has picked out for us. Welcome back, Marta. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you very much. Excellent. So, Marta, could you please give us a brief overview of the case you've selected and tell us why you've chosen this case in particular? Yes. Um, as I mentioned, my interest is sudden infant death and sudden death in childhood. Because we call sudden infant death or sudden death in childhood when we have done everything and we don't know what is the cause of death. However, many times we do find a cause of death. And that can obviously provide answers to the families, to the doctors who look after the patient. But also it may prevent other deaths in the families. So th that's why when you ask me to if I do remember a case that produced an impact in my life, this is a case that I would like to share with you. This was possibly around 2007 when I was doing a postmortem on a child that was between four to five years old. She was a, a, in, in a shop at the moment of her collapse and death. She was a in the arms of a brother who was doing some shopping and she collapsed and was unresuscitable. I did a postmortem and at that time I always welcomed trainees in my in my room, in my postmortem suite. So this was a, a trainee uh, in genetic, in clinical genetics, who is obviously now a very good consultant as as a trainee, she pointed me to the right direction. And this was a sudden death, and we couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything. But the child was deaf. And that is important, because when you do a postmortem, it's not only the findings or the lack of findings, but also is the association of conditions. In this case, was a sudden death, and a child being deaf. The other important thing is that this was an Asian family and they, they were consanguineous. So that's important because these families carry a high risk of recessive conditions. That means that a gene for a condition is inherited by from the mother and from the father. So they may be both carriers, but when they are expressing a child, they are both recessive, the child ca ca becomes an index case. So um, she suggested, Marta, don't you think this can be a Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome? Because that carries arrhythmias with deafness. So when to look into the literature, and of course, approximately 10 to 13% of the cases of sudden infant death and sudden death in childhood and even sudden death in adults are produced by arrhythmias. And sometimes the first clinical symptom is the sudden death. And of course, that comes with the genes. 
So what I did is I did a thorough postmortem and I produced a report and I, re I suggested that this family should be referred for clinical counseling because they need to exclude the possibility of Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome, also known as Jarvell-Lange-Nielsen syndrome. And the family was referred to clinical genetics. But I didn't know anything else after a few years later when a, a consultant clinical geneticist from my hospital mentioned about a case, a family affected by Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome. And when I asked, it was this family. So what had happened is that when we do the postmortem investigation, we will always take a sample from the muscle, the heart, the kidneys, and the liver that is per protocol and keep that frozen at minus 80. And that is then available for the molecular analysis. So in this case, because I refer the family to genetic counseling, obviously the, the doctor taking consent would have recommended the family keep the frozen tissue. So that is so important because this is the only opportunity that you have to keep the frozen tissue at the postmortem and then for the family to consent. So this tissue would have been requested, the molecular analysis done, and the Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome was confirmed in this little girl. Then the family was studied, obviously looking for the same mutation that this child had because they already she was the index case. And they found that 50% of the family was affected by the condition. So in both sides, because they were, there was a consanguineous family. So that was so rewarding because after the tragic loss of the child, there is hope for the family that they would not suffer more death because now they know what they have and that is the um, help that the, that the role of the pediatric pathology has uh, is to help these families to find the causes of death. And more and more, we are more able to identify these genetics underlying conditions or underlying conditions of genetic cause that in the past we didn't know. So it will come one day that with exome sequencing, all these conditions will be identified, or most of them. Mm. Well, that's um, not too far into the future either, I hope. Uh, so, Marta, you've mentioned consanguinous a few times. What does that mean? That means that the child is the product of a mom and a dad that are related. So they are family. It may be close family, it may be not so close, but because they are family, they share genes. And if you have a condition that is recessive, that means that you have you need the two genes from mom and from dad present to be expressed as a condition, then if you are family and you share genes because you are consanguineous, then you have higher chance to have certain conditions. We've mentioned exome sequencing. I'm sure people have heard of genome sequencing. Could you just explain what the difference between the two is, please? So, uh, as you say, it's different. Uh, genome sequencing uh, is sequencing the whole genome, is looking at the whole genome, while exome sequencing is targeting. It's targeting those parts of the genome 
that uh, produce or code for uh, proteins. That means is the more um, active part or functional part of the genome. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome is and how common it is? Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome is a rare condition and also because, as I mentioned, is recessive. So you need two uh, genes from each, the mother and from the dad, uh, to be present in, in, the, in the patient. Uh, what happened is that uh, most cases are caused by disruptions or mutations of one of two genes. The genes, the most common is the KCNQ1, but also it may be the KCNE1. And what happened is that uh, this produce uh, an arrhythmia. This leads to an arrhythmia. So, and the arrhythmia will lead to, uh, or may lead to symptoms like tachycardia, but sometimes the patient goes into a ventricular arrhythmia and causes sudden death. I like in this case, the sudden death is the presenting symptom, unfortunately. So what happened is that uh, the association between arrhythmia and deafness is because uh, is these genes uh, produce obviously proteins that are essential to the function of the uh, ion channels of the heart, and part of the inner ear, that is the cochlea. So that's why the same mutation affect two separate organs, that is the inner ear cochlea, that is expressed with deafness, and the heart, which is expressed with arrhythmias. Right. Okay. And so just for some of our listeners who might not be scientific, genes are the instructions for making proteins. And if there's a problem with the instructions, then the proteins don't form properly. And in this case, it's to do with letting salts in and out of the cells. And it's the cells in the ear, which is why you get the deafness. And it's also the cells in the heart that use this gene, which is why the child had the arrhythmia. An ECG is uh, checking the electrical rhythm of the heart. You may have seen in films or TV, that's where they put the sticky patches on someone's chest uh, and there's a wavy line on a screen. For the listeners, when you have the ECG, you know the ECG has like spikes and segments. So these uh, segments, one that is called QT, will become longer than normal. And that will allow the entry of ectopic um, uh, rhythm and become the arrhythmia. Oh, so the electrical tracing on the heart may yes. show changes. Exactly. Right. That's why it's important, the ECG. And uh, maybe a learning would have been a child that have consanguineous families that is deaf do an ECG. <laughs> mm, yes, that could have been really important. Yes. So other than the deafness and maybe if the child had had an electrical tracing on the heart um, that may have shown changes, would the patient have had any other symptoms? No, no. Goodness. Um, so you already mentioned that during the process of a paediatric postmortem, you keep um, particular samples frozen. But could you tell us a little bit more about um, what, other samples are normally taken as part of the process. Yes, and uh, 
for instance, I always start taking skin sample for fibroblast culture. So the cells in the skin uh, will be put in a culture medium and will grow fibroblast. And with that, um, one sample will go for genetics, but that is for the study of chromosomes. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not mutations like in this case. Uh, but other sample I take to will go for a metabolic uh, analysis. So we will measure uh, a lab in our um, uh, care group will measure the fatty oxidation. And that uh, will give us um, an idea of it is a reduced fat oxidation. Maybe there is a problem with the mitochondria that are subcellular organisms that produce energy. So we have 3% of our cases in which we found a reduced fat oxidation and we send them to a lab in, in Oxford is Professor Joe Poulton. And we have found that there are cells that they have less mitochondria, so they produce less uh, energy. So that is very useful also because we can, um, we can exclude with a fibroblast culture and, and a blood spot screens, mm -hmm. uh, any metabolic uh, fat oxidation disorder. Then we will take a, a microbiology, so looking for infections. We will look for bacteria and we will look for viruses. And we will uh, do uh, from the nasopharynx, we will take sample from the uh, trachea, the airway. We will take sample from the blood. We will take sample from the bowel content, the feces, and also from the lungs. And many times, 30% of the babies dying suddenly and unexpectedly will have uh, organisms. And most of the times, uh, if, if the organism is not responsible of death, it's just a coincidence, uh, but it's very frequent that the children who die suddenly and unexpectedly have an upper airway viral mm -hmm. infection. So having risk factor for sudden infant death is obviously the age, if it is winter, if it is a male, but also if they have a cold. Obviously, if they are sleeping uh, prone, if there are um, uh, parents smoke or use drugs, that are all risk factors. But having a cold is also a, a risk factor. And uh, we will also do toxicology. So we will send samples from the blood and sometimes from the urine, if there is urine, because sometimes the blood is empty. Uh, nowadays, uh, we are working with uh, one of my trainees in a study of diabetes presenting a sudden death in, mm. in childhood. And uh, they die of diabetes, hyperglycemia, ketonemia, unexpectedly, and sometimes death, sudden death is the presenting symptom. And we found very useful uh, the sample from the vitreous in the mm -hmm. eye. So we will uh, measure glucose from the vitreous and uh, it's, it's very helpful. So a uh, lot of samples when we do a case of sudden infant death. 
Wow. So just to summarize that, that's um, skin sample to grow particular cells to look for how the body metabolizes fat. Um, and you take samples for microbiology, which is growing bacteria or to look for viruses. And you also do toxicology, which looks at a number of things. Um, but you can also check for diabetes by taking a fluid sample from the eye for toxicology. Wow, that's an awful lot of um, samples to take. Um, and you've already spoken a lot about the tests that you carry out on the samples. So in the case of um, the little girl that you've been describing with Jarvell-Nielsen syndrome, um, what would you find if you ran these tests? Would they come back with anything? Not this, only the uh, mutational analysis only the mutational analysis, all the rest were normal. And that's why uh, sudden infant death or sudden death in childhood is the first cause of death in children in the developed world. Uh, but more and more we are uh, investigating and getting to know uh, the conditions behind the sudden death and the causes are reducing. So uh, in the past, when I came in 2003, 60% uh, of death, no, 80% of death were sudden infant death and 20% there was a cause. But since we are using this very thorough protocol and we are learning more and more and more, um, uh, only 50% uh, are mm. sudden infant death. So the causes of sudden infant death have reduced because we have also been able to increase our diagnostic yield. Uh, sometimes, for instance, we will do electron microscopy. And I think it's important the uh, expertise of the person who is doing the postmortem. I remember very clearly a case in which it was a newborn baby and um, the baby died during delivery and they, found, it was a second postmortem, and I only did electron microscopy because this skin was very friable and the baby had fractures during delivery. So I thought maybe it could be a stand loss. Mm. And it was a condition of the collagen, which make this um, skin very friable and the blood vessels and the bones. It was a type 7C, very, very, very rare. And in that case, the electron microscopy saved the obstetrician who has been, um, who was going to be prosecuted due to negligence. And actually uh, it was a letdownos. And it, again, it was a consanguineous family. Mm. So sometimes um, the pediatric pathologist will do the postmortem, but will gather all the samples. But sometimes you have to think out of the box and think it may be something new. And you only have one opportunity that is at the postmortem. And you've mentioned uh, sending molecular tests. Uh, when do you know to test for something that may be genetic? And when do you know that that might not be the appropriate test for the case? It's an important question, Natasha, because this is a teamwork. So the pathologist will procure the um, sample, either the skin sample for cytogenetics or the frozen sample for molecular genetics. So what I advise would be, I send 
this family should be referred or is advised that this family refer to genetic counseling. And then the family will go to the clinical geneticist and the clinical geneticist will uh, consent the tissue to be used in, genetic, in molecular analysis and we will send that to a genetic lab. So, but if there was no sample, that clinical geneticist has a very limited scope because it doesn't have anything to do the test. What test if there is no sample? So the same with the microbiology or the toxicology. We send the samples to another lab and this is essentially teamwork. And teamwork is also uh, working with the pediatrician, for instance, because we don't interview the family. We may meet the family to pass on a, a, a result or findings at post-mortem or to take consent. But the pediatrician is, goes to the visit, to the scene, speak to the family, how this baby was sleeping, what's the family history, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes there is some information that is provided by the pediatrician who would, would say, okay, I think they, this may be this sort of death. For instance, it happened to me uh, that a, a child have died and I only found a very uh, wet lab, uh, lungs. So there was edema and there was such a diffuse edema that you only find that in cardiac death. And I even consulted with a, with a cardiac pathologist because I couldn't find anything in the heart. And when the pediatrician, uh, when we met, it was at the very early days of the protocol. So it was at the, at the inquest. And this baby has actually been found dead, if a head down, feet up, a, a wedge in between the, a bed and the wall. So then I, I stand up in the, at the inquest and I say, I have to change my cause of death of sudden infant death. This child died of positional asphyxia. Mm. So it's, it's, it's really a teamwork. And this is the beauty of this Kennedy protocol that integrates how the different um, laboratories and samples and the police and the coroner and the pediatrician, we all work together to make the best of it. Yes, and as you mentioned, that's a really broad spectrum of people that you work with. Um, and you've mentioned the non-clinical teams that you work with as well, like the police and the coroner as well. Um, and as you said, you know, something like a, a piece of information about how the child was found that was for that particular case that you briefly mentioned was the difference between a family having to go through genetic counselling and a family not having to go through that. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, so we've already spoken about the genetic test that was done for the little girl with Jarvel Nielsen and uh, we've spoken about the genes that were affected and how this can be inherited and you mentioned um, that at a chance conversation with a colleague you found out the outcome for the family uh, would you just like to um, talk a little bit more about that and um, what impact a diagnosis like this could have on a family? Of course, if you have this condition, which is a serious arrhythmia, you have a very high chance that many family members would have a, a sudden death. And that sudden death can be at any age, can be a teenager, can be a young person. So sudden death of the adult, sudden cardiac death. So 
if 50% of the family members were affected, that I think that it was a huge help to the family to um, identify this 50% of the big family and maybe save their life. So it was, I always remember Emma, the clinical geneticist who uh, first suggested, could not this be a Jarvan Nielsen syndrome? And really it, this family was so lucky that uh, it was at the end, um, you know, a positive outcome, despite after having gone through the tragic life, uh, death of the little girl, you know, saving the life of 50% of the family member is a huge, huge, um, you know, reward after that. Definitely. Um, and it sounds like it was a, a very interesting case and there is a lot to learn from it, but what in particular did you take away from the case? Okay, in particular, first of the teamwork, of how important is that I was at the postmortem with the clinical geneticist and then I was able to discuss this case even by chance later with uh, the person who, who was uh, counseling all the family. Uh, second of how important it is to uh, procure frozen tissue to do molecular analysis when it is needed. As I always say to the families, uh, because what happened with the coroners is that there is no need of consent to do the postmortem. But once the coroner has concluded with the inquest, the family has the right to say, we'll keep the tissue for us or for us and for research, or um, we destroy the tissue mm -hmm. or it can be returned to me. So the family has gold in their hands. And sometimes the people taking consent that maybe the coroner officer or maybe a police or maybe, you know, somebody who is a nurse but doesn't know all the depth of the lack of diagnosis when you make the diagnosis of sudden infant death. When you make the diagnosis of sudden infant death or sudden death in childhood means that you don't know. But as you mentioned earlier, the exome sequencing is going to bring a lot of information about genes, about um, correlation between one gene and the other, and how you know one mutation may be affected if there is a second mutation in another gene, et cetera. So we will be learning a lot, and this is coming in the next few years. So that families, even if the postmortem was done 20 years ago, they can always go back and say, I want a sample of my child who died in this year, in this hospital to be analyzed through exome sequencing. And then they may have an answer later. And then if they have an answer, because the genes run in the family and the uh, families that have sudden infant death carry the risk of a repeat sudden infant death. So having history of sudden infant death is another risk factor for sudden infant death. So you, they can go back, identify the gene, and then run that in the family members and identify if any other family member is at risk. So what, uh, what I learned from this case is not only the teamwork, uh, but also the importance of 
keeping the frozen tissue for doing molecular analysis. And as I mentioned uh, many times, uh, I think that it may be a sudden the cardiac death, and I refer the families to uh, genetic counselors. And usually, you know, the molecular analysis finds something. So today is not routinely done, but we are doing more and more. But in the near future, it will be done in all cases because now sudden infant death will be categorized or is categorized as a rare disease, and therefore it will go through exon sequencing. So that's, that was a big learning for me. And that was in 2007. So now we are closer than we were then. Yeah. And even if at the time somebody has sequencing and maybe it doesn't show anything, or, you know, we, we can't interpret the results at that time, the more and more information that we have, the more we can go back and look for things, do studies, do more research. Absolutely. Look, we are now working uh, with Microsoft in this because obviously Microsoft have the big data analysis and, and obviously we will be doing the exome sequencing, but we, we may not know which is the relevance of that without doing all the data analysis. So this again is going to be another big team work in two different fields and disciplines, molecular genetics and informatics. Oh, definitely. Um, and that's something that I'm working on personally as well is that I think that's going to be really important is making sure that clinicians are involved in the interpretation of this data and its generation. Yeah. And, and of course, this is very limited, but that will change the way we treat uh, cancer because it will be depending on the molecular um, features of each particular cancer and which drugs will be um, used. Mm -hmm. So it won't be a genetic chemotherapy for XY tumor. It will be according, and it's already going through according to which is the mutation. Yeah, so everything from helping families to understand why they've lost a child all the way through to making sure that patients get the right treatment for their cancer. Wow. Well, brilliant, Marta. I mean, it's it's been another absolutely fascinating conversation um, with you. Um, but unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. Uh, thank you again to our production team, because without them, none of this would be possible. And of course, thank you to our listeners for listening. All the previous podcast episodes are available at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. You can also follow the Royal College of Pathologists on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to get involved with the Royal College of Pathologists 60th anniversary celebrations this year, visit www.rcpath.org forward slash diamond jubilee for details of all our events and competitions, as well as free resources to run your own activities. I am Natasha Cutmore, and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sirdan. Dan.